Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. In our series, Sacred Conversations, this week we have zoomed in on the evangelist's heart and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Those sacred conversations really begin in their prompting before we approach the bistro table. They begin here and now. Thank you for being faithful to have daily Bible study. Romans chapter 7 is something that I've, I've referred to three times this week alone, and so now it's time to go and experience the real thing. In yesterday's devotion, we came out of Galatians 5. We talked about how the Spirit lives within us and the flesh is also still here, and these two are opposed to one another. And the number one reason that Christians give for not sharing their faith is they just feel like hypocrites. And this becomes a rationale for never sharing our faith. And it's like sinning twice. Sinning because we sinned in a way that makes us hypocrites. And then we sin again by just hearing Jesus give the Great Commission and saying, Nope. So instead, repent from sin. Follow the Holy Spirit's prompting first to repent when you are convicted. You know that you're His because you have the Holy Spirit. If you didn't have the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't be His. See 1 John 4.13, see Romans 8.9. And so now what? Talk about keeping in step with the Spirit. Here is a realization that is vital, you know, for, for all Christians. And it's a dividing line between legalistic, fake Christianity and the real thing, which can be messier than it often appears in the church world. It's also something that will affect your sacred conversations because it'll be on their hearts and minds. When you sit down at the bistro table, you have the Holy Spirit of God living within you. Jesus said that He's with you always even to the very end of the age. So you know that his presence is there. And if this person truly is saved, they're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Legalistic PR-related Christianity has also established a huge barrier to evangelism. When people puff themselves up, acting like they don't struggle with sin at all. This is something that pastors are particularly guilty of, right? Uh, it sets an unrealistic expectation. And then people look at that, that guy on the platform who evidently has never made a single mistake in his life. And like, here I am, I'm a wretch. So like, this isn't for me, because I'll never be like that. They get the cart before the horse, and they think, I'm not well-behaved enough to be saved. Not understanding that when you confess Jesus as Lord, that's a miracle of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit lives within you, now you can walk in step with the Spirit. You've been producing the results of sinful flesh your entire life, but now with the Holy Spirit, you're walking in step with the Spirit and producing the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. But until the day you die, until the day the flesh is slain and buried, we will remain with it and we will struggle with it. That's reality. The person who's saved is going to have the Holy Spirit. They're going to repent from sin. But it's not like their battle ends the day they profess Christ. In fact, Paul's battle with sin did not end on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9 when he saw the resurrected Jesus. 
was blinded for three days. No, according to Romans chapter 7, he continually struggled with it. All right, here's Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. For I do not understand what I'm doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Do you remember this from Galatians 5? You end up doing what you don't want to do. Like every time a Christian sins, there's something going off in our head saying like, this is stupid, don't do this, this is wrong, you don't really want to do this. And then you just feel terrible for having done it. So it actually ruined the fun of it anyway. <laughs> right? Like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to feel this way. But do it anyway. When we sin, we knew better beforehand. We didn't want to do it. I don't understand what I'm doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives within me. Okay, both in verses 17 and in 20, Paul has made it clear that he is not his sin. It's not me doing it, it's the sin living within me. This is critical. He identifies himself as a spirit-filled Christian. And he identifies the sin as his old flesh, his earthly nature, the sin living within him. This is important, okay? Because in a world of Christians playing gotcha in the public square on social media, we find a Christian caught in hypocrisy and we define that image bearer of God by the sin that they've committed. And we, if we call them not a Christian, end up pulling up the weed and oftentimes actually have wheat in our hands. See our teaching on the parable of the wheat and the weeds. He's talking about the struggle of what it is to be a saved person still living in an earthly body that has carnal desires that will lead us astray sometimes. And in verses, in, uh, in, in these verses, he has twice now indicated that I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives within me. That's verse 20, and it's also verse 17. So I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living within me. He has said the same thing twice now, just for emphasis here. That's critical, right? Because the, the enemy will use the guilt you feel over your sin to try to redefine you in your own eyes, that you are nothing more than all of your worst moments. But this is not what Paul is saying. He's gone out of his way to be clear. That's not who you are. That's your sin, but that doesn't define you. Verse 21, so I discover, uh, for, uh, so I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law. So the inner true self delights in God. 
in His law and His commands, His standards for morality, we find them good, we aspire unto them, we admire God, we see God glorified through them, we see Jesus adhering to the law perfectly, summarizing the law succinctly, fulfilling the law on the cross, and then inviting us unto salvation in His resurrection. So we delight in the law. That's who Paul actually is. He's twice said that it's not me, it's the sin that lives within me. But my inner self actually delights in God's law. But I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? This is what the Christian walk actually looks like in real life and it's spelled out overtly in scripture by none other than the apostle Paul himself. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin separates the mind from the flesh, knowing that hardwired into our DNA is Adam and Eve's proclivity under the forbidden. And he knows that he is not defined by that anymore. He's been set free from that. And yet he feels like there is a war waging in the law of his mind. He feels like he's been taken prisoner to the law of sin that lives within the parts of his body. Okay, if this comes up in the sacred conversation, I'm, I can't become a Christian. I've messed up in these ways. Bring them to Romans chapter seven, verse 14 through 25, and explain how Christians haven't done a good job of exhibiting this, right? It's, I mean, just ask me why. Like there are, there is a for as pastors, like there's a for-profit slander and libel industry out there that earns advertising and subscription dollars when they catch someone in sin and they don't bother to check the facts, by the way, they'll just bear false witness against somebody and they'll earn money because of it, right? So pastors are a little bit apprehensive. I mean, I've seen this as well, even publicly confessing your sin, sometimes that confession can't be trusted in the hands of somebody with malicious intent, right? Because you've confessed it doesn't absolve you from even like, you know, uh, uh, being mistreated <laughs> because some people will take your confession and then sharpen it into a weapon against you and then misrepresent it and abuse you with it while they sin, all right? Like the wolf coming after the dog because he eats meat. And so it's bad, man, it's bad. Uh, it's, it's really, really tough. Apply this to the world of like just your average Joe non-pastors and the same kind of pressure is there. There are cameras everywhere. <laughs> you know, when, when, I, when, I, when I sin, I feel terrible about it. I feel like a, a stupid hypocrite. So I repent from sin again and again and again. But then, man, I feel like a prisoner in my own body because it, I'm naturally in the parts of my body going to be des uh, desirous of sinful things. And this won't go away until the day I die. Uh, as pastors, we are far better suited representing this inner war authentically. Because if you try to pretend like the war is over the day you're saved, you've just totally counteracted what we saw in yesterday's devotion in Galatians 5. You just totally refuted Romans chapter 7. Rather, it is better to describe a war, and it's a war worth fighting.
And it's a war with a victory day that's already in the hands of God. It is a war that will be won in the end. So do not, when you have the sacred conversation, promise that the struggle is going to be over. In Seattle culture especially, this is going to translate to sexual sin. That's just sort of the, the sin du jour here. When you share the gospel with somebody who is homosexual, who identifies as transgender, it doesn't mean that the day that they're saved, they're thereby forever absolved from any temptation in that regard. That could be the case. That's what Jesus told us to pray for after all in the Lord's Prayer. But in all likelihood, they're going to be tempted to step back into that world again. Right? The, like even the director of a really prominent, really fruitful and amazing ministry on this subject was himself caught going to uh, a gay bar, for example. Publicly confesses and he repents and he gets back up again, gets back on the horse and continues in ministry. But it happens. All right? It's a war. You know, this man is prisoner to his own body. So don't make false promises when you lead someone to Christ. And also dispel the expectation that when you give your life to Jesus, you're going to be expected to be absolutely perfect all the time forevermore. All right, no, read them this passage. Know that to give your life to Christ is to take up the cross, is to crucify the flesh. All right, and sometimes the flesh tries to get off the cross. All right, it's a war. It's a war. It's a war. It's not always clean, and I'm particularly suspicious when it looks really spotless from the outside. When I see a pastor wearing a navy suit and a red tie with an American flag pinned right here, and a golden retriever with a red bandana sitting in front of his white picket fence in his American four-square house, all right, with a model wife and kids who are dressed like it's the 50s, I'm like, this guy definitely owns multiple meth labs. <laughs> Because if you're not being authentic about the fact that you struggle, you just refuted Romans 7. So forgive us, please, as pastors, for trying to play the PR game. It's something that's been happening for centuries in the church world. It's something that it really is, you know, the whole nature of the Catholic Church, for example. And forgive us for setting that false expectation and instead, instead, let them know in the sacred conversation that this is a real thing. This is a real thing. This is a war. We are no longer going to just give in to the flesh. We're going to wage war with it. We're no longer going to do everything our bodies tell us to do. What a stupid way to live your life, by the way. <laughs> like I'm going to set my whole moral compass and my worldview around what my body craves. That's got to be the worst moral compass in the world, right? Because your body will desire disgusting things. No, instead, abide by the Spirit of God living within you and repent from that sin. We're not animals. We have self-control. That means that every time we sin, it's our own stupid fault. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that God gave us a way out and we just didn't take it. So fight the good fight, win the war, follow the Holy Spirit instead of the flesh. Establish this expectation in the sacred conversation and begin in your own heart by winning that war so that you can help somebody step up.